Section 13 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Publication of the Justinian Code. A.D. 529-534, to by Edward Gibbon, Part 1. The richest legacy ever left by one civilization to another was the Justinian Code. This compilation of the entire body of the Roman civil law, Corpus Iuris Civilis, as evolved during the thousand years after the Decemvirate legislation of the Twelve Tables, comprises perhaps the most valuable historical data preserved from ancient times. It presents a vivid and authentic picture of the domestic life of the Romans and the rules which governed their relations to each other. This phase of history is considered by modern historians as of far greater importance than the chronicles of battles and court intrigues. The importance of the Justinian Code, however, is not that of mere history. Its influence as a living force is what compels the admiration and gratitude of mankind. It forms the basis of the systems of law in all the civilized nations of the world, with the exception of those of the English-speaking peoples. And even in these, the principles of the civil law, as the Roman law is called in contradistinction to the common and statute law of these nations, form the most important part of the regulations concerning personal property. For this monumental work, the world is indebted to Justinian I, Flavius Anicius Justinianus, the most famous of the emperors of the Eastern Empire since Constantine. He was born a Slavonian peasant. Uprauda, his original name, was Latinized into Justinian when he became an officer in the Imperial Guard. He was adopted, educated, and trained by Justin I, whom he succeeded as emperor. His long reign, 527 to 565, was disturbed by the sanguinary factions of the circus, the greens and the blues, so named from the colors of the competing charioteers in the games, the suppression of the schools at philosophy at Athens, and by various wars. Nevertheless, it was marked by magnificent works, the administrative organization of the empire, and the great buildings at Constantinople. The Church of Santa Sofia, the first great Christian church, although used as a Mohammedan mosque since 1459, still stands at Constantinople, with its plain exterior but impressive interior, a monument of Justinian's reign. His two great masters of war, foreigners in origin like himself, were Belisarius the Thracian and Narses the Armenian. Africa was wrested from the Vandals. Italy from the successors of Theodoric, and much of Spain from the Western Goths. Under Justinian, the Byzantine or Eastern Empire resumed much of the majesty and power of ancient Rome. But the crowning glory of his career was the Code. One of the greatest historians says of his reign, Its most instructive lesson has been drawn from the influence which its legislation has exercised on foreign nations. The unerring instinct of mankind has fixed on this period as one of the greatest eras in man's annals.
The Code was a digest of the whole mass of Roman law literature, compiled and annotated at the command of Justinian, under the supervision of the great lawyer Tribonian, who with his helpers reduced the chaotic mass to a logical system containing the essence of Roman law. The first part of the Codex Constitutionem, prepared in less than a year, was published in April 529. The second part, the Digest, or Pandects, appeared in December 533. To ensure conformity, both were revised and issued in November 534. The Institutiones, an elementary textbook founded on the Institutiones of Gaius, who lived A.D. 110-180, to being added, and the whole as a complete body of law given to the law schools at Constantinople, Rome, Alexandria, Beritus, and Caesarea for use in their graduate course. Later, the novellae constitutione, or novels, most of them in Greek, comprising statutes of Justinian arranged chronologically, completed the code. Forgotten or ignored during the lawless days of the Dark Ages, an entire copy of this famous code was discovered when Amalfi was taken by the Pisans in 1137. Its publication immediately attracted the attention of the learned world. Gratian, a monk of Bologna, compiled a digest of the canon law on the model of that work, and soon afterward, incorporating with his writings the collections of prior authors, gave his decretum to the public in 1151. From that time, the two codes, the civil and canon laws, were deemed the principal repositories of legal knowledge, and the study of each was considered necessary to throw light on the other. Justinian's example in the codification of laws was followed by almost every European nation after the 18th century. The Code Napoleon, 1803-04, regulating all that pertains to the civil rights of citizens and of property, being the most brilliant parallel to the Justinian Code. The reader familiar with the life of Napoleon will recall that all of his historians quote his frequent allusion to the Code Napoleon as the one great work which would be a living monument of his career, when the glory of all his other achievements would be dimmed by time or forgotten. Gibbon's examination of the Justinian Code is justly regarded as one of the most important features of the historian's great work, and in several of the leading universities of Europe has long been used as a textwork on civil law. When Justinian ascended the throne, the reformation of the Roman jurisprudence was an arduous but indispensable task. In the space of ten centuries, the infinite variety of laws and legal opinions had filled many thousand volumes, which no fortune could purchase and no capacity could digest. Books could not easily be found, and the judges, poor in the midst of riches, were reduced to the exercise of their illiterate discretion. The subjects of the Greek provinces were ignorant of the language that disposed of their lives and properties, and the barbarous dialect of the Latins was imperfectly studied in the academies of Berytus and Constantinople. As an Illyrian soldier, that idiom was familiar to the infancy of Justinian. His youth had been instructed by the lessons of jurisprudence, and his imperial choice selected the most learned civilians of the East to labor with their sovereign in the work of reformation. 
the theory of professors was assisted by the practice of advocates and the experience of magistrates, and the whole undertaking was animated by the spirit of Tribonian. This extraordinary man, the object of so much praise and censure, was a native of city in Panthilia, and his genius, like that of Bacon, embraced as his own all the business and knowledge of the age. Tribonian composed, both in prose and verse, and a strange diversity of curious and abstruse subjects, a double panegyric of Justinian and the life of the philosopher Theodotus, the nature of happiness and the duties of government, Homer's catalogue and the four-and-twenty sorts of meter, the astronomical canon of Ptolemy, the changes of the months, the houses of the planets, and the harmonic system of the world. To the literature of Greece he added the use of the Latin tongue, the Roman civilians were deposited in his library and in his mind, and he most assiduously cultivated those arts which opened the road of wealth and preferment. From the bar of the Praetorian prefects he raised himself to the honours of quaestor, of consul, and of master of the offices. The council of Justinian listened to his eloquence and wisdom, and envy was mitigated by the gentleness and affability of his manners. The reproaches of impiety and avarice have stained the virtues or the reputation of Tribonian. In a bigoted and persecuting court, the principal minister was accused of a secret aversion to the Christian faith, and was supposed to entertain the sentiments of an atheist and a pagan, which have been imputed, inconsistently enough, to the last philosophers of Greece. His avarice was more clearly proved and more sensibly felt. If he were swayed by gifts in the administration of justice, the example of Bacon will again occur. Nor can the merit of Tribonian atone for his baseness if he degraded the sanctity of his profession. And if laws were every day enacted, modified, or repealed for the base consideration of his private emolument. In the sedition of Constantinople, his removal was granted to the clamors, perhaps to the just indignation, of the people. But the quester was speedily restored, and till the hour of his death he possessed above twenty years the favor and confidence of the emperor. His passive and dutiful submission has been honored with the praise of Justinian himself, whose vanity was incapable of discerning how often that submission degenerated into the grossest adulation. Tribonian adored the virtues of his gracious master. The earth was unworthy of such a prince, and he affected a pious fear that Justinian, like Elijah or Romulus, would be snatched into the air and translated alive to the mansions of celestial glory. If Caesar had achieved the reformation of the Roman law, his creative genius, enlightened by reflection and study, would have given to the world a pure and original system of jurisprudence. Whatever flattery might suggest, the Emperor of the East was afraid to establish his private judgment as the standard of equity. In the possession of legislative power, he borrowed the aid of time and opinion, and his laborious compilations are guarded by the sages and legislators of past times. Instead of a statue cast in a simple mould by the hand of an artist, the works of Justinian represent a tessellated pavement of antique and costly, but too often of incoherent fragments. In the first year of his reign, 
he directed the faithful Tribonian and nine learned associates to revise the ordinances of his predecessors, as they were contained since the time of Adrian, in the Gregorian, Hermogenian, and Theodosian codes, to purge the errors and contradictions, to retrench whatever was obsolete and superfluous, and to select the wise and salutary laws best adapted to the practice of the tribunals and the use of his subjects. The work was accomplished in fourteen months, and the twelve books or tables which the new decemvirs produced might be designed to imitate the labors of their Roman predecessors. The new code of Justinian was honored with his name and confirmed by his royal signature. Authentic transcripts were multiplied by the pens of notaries and scribes. They were transmitted to the magistrates of the European, the Asiatic, and afterwards the African provinces. And the law of the empire was proclaimed on solemn festivals at the doors of churches. A more arduous operation was still behind, to extract the spirit of jurisprudence from the decisions and conjectures, the questions and disputes of the Roman civilians. Seventeen lawyers, with Tribonian at their head, were appointed by the emperor to exercise an absolute jurisdiction over the works of their predecessors. If they had obeyed his command in ten years, Justinian would have been satisfied with their diligence, and the rapid composition of the digest or pandex in three years will deserve praise or censure according to the merit of the execution. From the library of Tribonian they chose forty, the most eminent civilians of former times. Two thousand treatises were comprised in an abridgment of fifty books, and it has been carefully reduced in this abstract to the moderate number of one hundred and fifty thousand. The edition of this great work was delayed a month after that of the Institutes, and it seemed reasonable that the elements should precede the digest of the Roman law. As soon as the emperor had approved their labors, he ratified by his legislative power the speculations of these private citizens. Their commentaries on the twelve tables, the perpetual edict, the laws of the people, and the decrees of the senate, succeeded to the authority of the text and the text was abandoned as a useless, though venerable, relic of antiquity. The Code, the Pandacts, and the Institutes were declared to be the legitimate system of civil jurisprudence. They alone were admitted in the tribunals, and they alone were taught in the academies of Rome, Constantinople, and Berytus. Justinian addressed to the Senate and provinces his eternal oracles, and his pride, under the mask of piety, ascribed the consummation of this great design to the support and inspiration of the deity. Since the emperor declined the fame and envy of original composition, we can only require at his hands method, choice, and fidelity, the humble though indispensable virtues of a compiler. Among the various combinations of ideas, it is difficult to assign any reasonable preference. But as the order of Justinian is different in his three works, it is possible that all may be wrong, and it is certain that two cannot be right. In the selection of ancient laws he seems to have viewed his predecessors without jealousy and with equal regard. The Sirius could not ascend above the reign of Hadrian, 
and the narrow distinction of paganism and Christianity introduced by the superstition of Theodosius had been abolished by the consent of mankind. But the jurisprudence of the Pandects is circumscribed within a period of a hundred years, from the perpetual edict to the death of Severus Alexander. The civilians who lived under the first Caesars are seldom permitted to speak, and only three names can be attributed to the age of the Republic. The favorite of Justinian, it has been fiercely urged, was fearful of encountering the light of freedom and the gravity of Roman sages. Tribonian condemned to oblivion the genuine and native wisdom of Cato, the Scaevolas, and Sulpicius, while he invoked spirits more congenial to his own, the Syrians, Greeks, and Africans, who flocked to the imperial court to study Latin as a foreign tongue and jurisprudence as a lucrative profession. But the ministers of Justinian were instructed to labor not for the curiosity of antiquarians, but for the immediate benefit of his subjects. It was their duty to select the useful and practical parts of the Roman law, and the writings of the old republicans, however curious or excellent, were no longer suited to the new system of manners, religion, and government. Perhaps if the preceptors and friends of Cicero were still alive, our candor would acknowledge that, except in purity of language, their intrinsic merit was excelled by the school of Pepinian and Alpian. The science of the laws is the slow growth of time and experience, and the advantage both of method and materials is naturally assumed by the most recent authors. The civilians of the reign of the Antonines had studied the works of their predecessors. Their philosophic spirit had mitigated the rigor of antiquity, simplified the forms of proceedings, and emerged from the jealousy and prejudice of the rival sects. The choice of the authorities that composed the Pandects depended on the judgment of Tribonian, but the power of his sovereign could not absolve him from the sacred obligations of truth and fidelity. As the legislator of the empire, Justinian might repeal the acts of the Antonines or condemn as seditious the free principles which were maintained by the last of the Roman lawyers. But the existence of past facts is placed beyond the reach of despotism, and the emperor was guilty of fraud and forgery when he corrupted the integrity of their text, inscribed with their venerable names the words and ideas of his servile reign, and suppressed by the hand of power the pure and authentic copies of their sentiments. The changes and interpolations of Tribonian and his colleagues are excused by the pretense of uniformity but their cares have been insufficient, and the antinomies or contradictions of the code and pandects still exercise the patience and subtlety of modern civilians. A rumor devoid of evidence has been propagated by the enemies of Justinian that the jurisprudence of ancient Rome was reduced to ashes by the author of the pandects, from the vain persuasion that it was now either false or superfluous. Without usurping an office so invidious, the emperor might safely commit to ignorance and time the accomplishment of this destructive wish. Before the invention of printing and paper, the labor and the materials of writing could be purchased only by the rich, and it may reasonably be computed that the price of books was a hundredfold their present value. 
copies were slowly multiplied and cautiously renewed. The hopes of profit tempted the sacrilegious scribes to erase the characters of antiquity, and Sophocles or Tacitus were obliged to resign the parchment to missiles, homilies, and the golden legend. If such was the fate of the most beautiful compositions of genius, what stability could be expected for the dull and barren works of an obsolete science? The books of jurisprudence were interesting to few and entertaining to none. Their value was connected with present use, and they sunk forever as soon as that use was superseded by the innovations of fashion, superior merit, or public authority. In the age of peace and learning, between Cicero and the last of the Antonines, many losses had been already sustained, and some luminaries of the school or forum were known only to the curious by tradition and report. Three hundred and sixty years of disorder and decay accelerated the progress of oblivion. And it may fairly be presumed that of the writings which Justinian is accused of neglecting, many were no longer to be found in the libraries of the East. The copies of Papinian or Alpian, which the reformer had proscribed, were deemed unworthy of future notice. The twelve tables and Praetorian edicts insensibly vanished, and the monuments of ancient Rome were neglected or destroyed by the envy and ignorance of the Greeks. Even the Pandects themselves have escaped with difficulty and danger from the common shipwreck, and criticism has pronounced that all the editions and manuscripts of the West are derived from one original. It was transcribed at Constantinople in the beginning of the 7th century, and successfully transported by the accidents of war and commerce to Amalfi, Pisa, and Florence, and is now deposited as a sacred relic in the ancient palace of the Republic. It is the first care of a reformer to prevent any future reformation. To maintain the text of the Pandects, the Institutes, and the Code, the use of ciphers and abbreviations was rigorously proscribed. And as Justinian recollected that the perpetual edict had been buried under the weight of commentators, he denounced the punishment of forgery against the rash civilians who should presume to interpret or pervert the will of their sovereign. The scholars of Accursius, of Bartolus, of Cuyacius should blush for their accumulated guilt unless they dare to dispute his right of binding the authority of his successors and the native freedom of the mind. But the emperor was enabled to fix his own inconstancy, and while he boasted of renewing the exchange of diamide, of transmuting brass into gold, discovered the necessity of purifying his gold from the mixture of baser alloy. Six years had not elapsed from the publication of the Code before he condemned the imperfect attempt by a new and more accurate edition of the same work, which he enriched with two hundred of his own laws and fifty decisions on the darkest and most intricate points of jurisprudence. Every year, or according to Procopius, every day of his long reign was marked by some legal innovation. Many of his acts were rescinded by himself. Many were rejected by his successors. Many have been obliterated by time. But the number of sixteen edicts and one hundred and sixty-eight novels has been admitted into the authentic body of the civil jurisprudence. 
in the opinion of a philosopher superior to the prejudices of his profession, these incessant and for the most part trifling alterations can only be explained by the venal spirit of a prince who sold without shame his judgments and his laws. Monarchs seldom condescend to become the preceptors of their subjects, and some praise is due to Justinian, by whose command an ample system was reduced to a short and elementary treatise. Among the various institutes of the Roman law, those of Caius were the most popular in the East and West, and their use may be considered as an evidence of their merit. They were selected by the imperial delegates Tribonian, Theophilus, and Dorotheus, and the freedom and purity of the Antonines were encrusted with the coarser materials of a degenerate age. The same volume which introduced the youth of Rome, Constantinople, and Berytus to the gradual study of the Code and Pandacts is still precious to the historian, the philosopher, and the magistrate. The Institutes of Justinian are divided into four books. They proceed, with no contemptible method, from one, persons, to two, things, and from things to three, actions, and the Article Four of Private Wrongs is terminated by the principles of criminal law. End of section 13